Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Great Britain and the EU. And um, Richard, at the end of June, there's going to be a referendum in the United Kingdom on whether or not the UK should continue its membership in the European Union. This has been building to a head for a while now, and the UK is probably you know, more at arm's length from the rest of the EU than any of the other member states. Why don't we just start for our audience by giving them a, a quick lay of the land as to the, the dominant arguments being made on both sides here? Okay, well, first, uh, pick up on the point about uh, uh, Britain being somewhat a marginal member of the EU. I think it's very accurate. The simplest way in which to identify it is to note that the euro is not the British currency, which remains the pound. And the second great observation to note is that England is separated from the rest of Europe by a uh, – English Channel. And the third note to remember is when the economic community was formed in Europe in 1957, Great Britain was not a part of it. Uh, the United Kingdom, to be more exact, joined, I think it was about 1973, and it sort of remained uneasily when the Treaty of Maastricht in 1993 transformed the European economic community, which was a free trade bloc, into the European Union, which was a basically a centralized planning operation run out of Brussels with much more direct control over the operation of the economy. And so all the early reluctance that uh, many of the Britons had before they joined continues to remain, particularly since the power that Brussels exerts over the entire European Union bloc is much greater perhaps than anybody anticipated at the time that the thing was put together in 1993. If you were a Brit, how would you vote on this question? Well, if I were a Brit, I'm not sure which way I would vote on this particular question. I think it's very close. The, the closeness is, in fact, reflected by the fact that uh, the vote now looks to be 47% to stay, 40% to go, and the uh, remaining uh, percentage basically undecided. Uh, a lot could shift in the between now and then. My guess is they will probably choose to stay because the establishment seems to be strongly in favor of it. Um, as far as I can see, the trade-offs are pretty clear. What's very difficult is to figure out the weight that you attach to each of the elements. There is no question in my mind that the source for getting out of there is the notion that Brussels exerts a stranglehold on the rest of the economy. Uh, Britain has a big left-wing socialist political party, and so I don't want to say that they're free market libertarians. They're surely not. But compared to some of the status folks on the continent, there is certainly a much more powerful libertarian movement inside Great Britain than anywhere else. It's also the case that Great Britain has done an enormous amount in world trade with its very powerful finance center in London, which plays to a world market as well as EU market. Uh, so there is certainly some strong reasons um, if you could work the transitions to get out, uh, giving you greater flexibility and freedom to deal with the rest of the world. There is a sense, I think, in England and everywhere else that the future of uh, a dynamic capitalism and economic growth in the world is not going to be in a more abundant sclerotic EU. It's going to be in the Asian tigers or somewhere else on the globe. And Britain would be better positioned to do that. 
the argument on the other side is twofold. Uh, one part of it says, do you know that this transition is going to be a real nightmare? We're going to have to redo a lot of treaties, a lot of arrangements. It may well be that when it comes to the EU bloc, it will be outsiders rather than insiders. Um, it may well be that our banking system will take a short hit. We don't know exactly how the transitions are going to work. So David Cameron, the prime minister, is predicting a year-long recession. Uh, people on the other side are saying he's just fear-mongering. Uh, the other element is it's quite clear that all the professional classes generally are comfortable with the current arrangement. Not pleased with all its particulars, but basically on balance thinking it's the lesser of the evils to stay. And that includes the lawyers and the business people and the government officials. And, you know, they basically are comfortable with the status quo. And, of course, that can easily, in this age of suspicious populism, be turned against them, saying the only reason why these guys are comfortable with the relationship is they tend to do very well for from it, whereas the rest of us who don't have these lubricated connections do far more poorly under the circumstances. So the sort of the anti-government bias, which is so evident in the United States, is surely cropping up inside the, um, the United Kingdom. I think it my guess is that they will stay. I think the vote will be close. I do not think it's the final vote that might happen on this. As in every one of these cases, if Britain does stay in, if the UK rather stays in, my guess is there will be at least some effort to try to renegotiate some of the more onerous portions of what goes on inside the EU. Good luck with all that. My own view is sort of listening to the sort of general rhetoric that comes out of the European Union is that these guys have everything upside down, is that they are absolute hawks to intervene where none is needed, on mainly on economic issues, whereas on questions having to do with national security and so forth, they have an exaggerated view of privacy and are often taking steps that I regard as quite detrimental to their health. Uh, so that's the basic mix right now. I mean, there are other things like immigration we can talk about, but I think that these, at least at the present, turn out to be the relevant considerations, making it a very difficult judgment. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. If the current situation is upside down, what would a functioning EU look like? Would it be purely an economic alliance at that point? Well, yeah, my view about it is the Treaty of Maastricht was a great mistake. I think what you really want to do is to have competition. You should explain what that is for a moment, Richard. Okay, the, well, the Treaty of Maastricht was the 1993 agreement, which changed it from a European economic community, which was essentially a large free trade zone, um, to an European Union, which meant that they had a central government, somewhat different from that inside the United States at Washington, but certainly a serious um, presence there. Now, the interesting thing about the EU is that this was not a union of several states, all of which had been colonies of Britain. This was a union that was forged out of nations which were independent states, often independent states with uh, suspicion against one another, often states like Germany, France, and Britain, who had fought with one another. And so when they decided to join the Union, essentially foreign policy and military affairs uh, remained with the several nations. Uh, you would have never been able to get a European Union if it had been a full merger of all these countries, now reduced to a single vote in the United States um, or the United Nations. So they have it exactly the inverse relationship that we do. Um, the military and foreign affairs stuff are done at the state level. The economic stuff is done at the national level. Now, the only thing that tends to happen when you have national regulation in this particular case is mischief. 
because what they do is they harmonize. And what harmonization means, think of a dumb system of regulation and then interpose it on everybody saying, well, you really don't have to worry about this because your competitors are subject to the same set of regulations, to which the answer is, if you shrink the pie equally for everybody, it's not the same as improving the situation for anybody. Never get taken away with the argument that all we need to worry about is parity. You actually have to worry about the substantive matters that are there. And so as far as I can see, there's almost all negatives that come out of the European Union. The free trade zone is exactly the opposite. What opens up is borders among states. Each of them has their own local government, and you can get a version of competitive federalism of the sort that has worked particularly well in the United States. In fact, um, many times when people would ask me about how the union should be put together, uh, they looked with somewhat astonishment saying, you know, what we really think ought to be the case in Europe is the way in which the United States was organized on economic issues before 1937. Weak powers of the central government only able to keep the communications and transportation lines open, basically, and relatively strong control by the states over manufacture, agricultural mining, uh, and other kinds of local commerce. It's not a bad model. And in fact, the model works better today than it did in 1787, because in those days, the ability to actually ship goods back and forth was much more hindered by very bulky transportation systems and weak communication systems. Today, these options are much more credible. Uh, so this is a classic case in which the American model, which was right in 1787, is even more right today. And so put it to the New Deal courts to say, just when the thing is working fine, we have to chuck it in favor of something else. And I think, in effect, the same argument could be made with respect to Europe. Going into a union as opposed to an open zone was a terrible mistake, and you would never have the kinds of issues you have now about pulling out if, in fact, this was still a trading community instead of a centralized government whose uh, commands are often very irksome to the British in a wide range of areas. How should we think about this question of the United Kingdom in the European Union vis-a-vis -vis the question of Scotland in the United Kingdom? Well, these are absolutely different kinds of situations. Um, what happens is Britain already is an independent nation. Um, it's an independent nation inside a loose confederation. If it pulls out, essentially it continues to run its foreign affairs and its domestic affairs as it ever did. When Scotland was part of, the, of, of Great Britain and the United Kingdom, if they wanted to get out, or they would have to start with a new bank. They'd have to establish a new currency. They'd have to figure out which of the previous treaties that had been entered into on military affairs would bind them. Would they be a member of NATO? They would have to set up an entire ambassadorial call from top to bottom. And they'd have to do this on a population of 6, 8, 10 million people, whatever it is, um, which is rather small for those particular circumstances. So I was basically one of many who believed uh, that given the fact that there had already been a working confederation inside the Scottish situation, maybe, just maybe, some greater devolution of powers to Scotland from the central government might be indicated, but that the complete break would be massively disruptive and would not get you much by way of economic liberalization. It's also worth noting that uh, Scotland has traditionally been more pro-labor than uh, Great Britain, which has been, rather, England that has been more conservative. So if they went out on their own, my guess is their own socialist dogmas would probably result in a massive constriction of the economy, at least if they're part of a larger nation, which is somewhat more conservative than they are, they have a fighting chance to survive. And so I'm of mixed emotions with respect to the situation on the um, withdrawal on the Brexit 
and strongly in favor of the union that existed between Scotland um, and England and, and the rest of Wales. And, and I do think, in effect, that the votes may well be similar in the two cases, but one seems to me to be a much clearer and stronger issue than the other. There is a sense, especially from conservatives in America, that Europe, um, especially post-Cold War Europe, is flagging as a, as a cultural force, as a political force, as an economic force. Is that your reading? Yes. I mean, look, my view about these characters is what they do is they think that they can have all of their desired policies on redistribution and all their desired policy on human rights and not have any consequences with respect to the standard living and the growth. Um, this key issue inside Europe is, in fact, the one that has now tied France into knots, which is the question of whether or not you could liberalize your labor markets. And the way in which France works today is that you have a group of haves, and I use the word in quotes, those people who have very strong tenure protection on their job, and then you have everybody else who's flitting about on the edge with no protections, no income, and no prospect. And the organized groups in the middle are large enough so that whenever somebody talks about liberalization, they can take to the streets in order to block it. And, you know, they win all the wars in the short run, but they lose all of them in the long run um, when, in effect, the overall level of productivity in these countries tends to go down. Um, one of the ways in which was put to me by an English wag is there is migration from England to France and from France to England. And the people who leave England are retirees who wish to bask in Provence and drink fine wine. And the people who go from France to England are those who want to earn a living in the prime of their life. And, and so what you see in effect is a real movement of this particular sort. Uh, there's very low birth rates inside these countries, um, and, and it turns out a complete kind of smugness about the uh, desirability of their system. Germany is a little bit better, uh, but you know, in the 40-odd years that I've been teaching, I've never been invited to give a speech in France because I don't think there's a libertarian organization of any stripe or persuasion that would be there to, um, to host me. And I treat that as a kind of a symbol of, of the basic type situation. You cannot get an argument about open market capitalism is against socialism. What these guys do is they have 15 different variations of socialism and they debate their merits amongst themselves, <laughs> not realizing that all of them are subject to a fatal failure, which is that centralized planning can never allocate goods and services and that rigid contracts in either labor markets, real estate markets, banking markets, whatever market you talk about, lead essentially to stultification, stagnation, and uh, the rapid decline in the standard of living. I don't see them changing this stuff. I think it's built into their political system. Uh, but if they don't change that, then ultimately you can see why it is the economy internal to itself is somewhat different from what you find on the continent. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.